Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank uh, everybody who uh, wrote me emails and responded to the shows about uh, Christmas and about New Year's Eve. Um, it's good to get these responses, obviously. Um, and people were particularly <clears throat> touched by uh, talking about my uh, odd experiences as a Jewish kid uh, with my best friend who was uh, part of an extremely religious Christian family. That was for Christmas. And then my reaction to uh, to New Year's uh, again when I was a kid, um, and all the uh, the difficulty I had being a prudish uh, loner, it was difficult on New Year's. New Year's always being difficult for everybody um, who was not attached to somebody else, and that was the main theme. 
So thanks again for uh, getting in touch. Uh, if you want to get in touch about anything you hear on the program here, best to go to my website. It's Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, and there'll be a way to contact me. Also a way to join my uh, mailing list. <coughs> well, uh, the carousel has started in earnest, the 115th, uh, you know, Christmas and New Year's are over, the vacations are over, and everybody's back to work. And what's the scariest about being back to work, I mean, for all of us, it's the start of a long, uh, for most of us, I should say, I'm no longer working in a regular job at an office, but for most of us uh, who are doing that, and for a lot of us who, uh, who um, you know, who are uh, connected to people who are doing that, it's the start of a long journey until... Um, until the um, spring and, and uh, there was a couple of holidays and then the summer vacations. So it's that long, that long hard stretch that we all learn to get used to and uh, that we never do get used to. Anyhow, what's opened is uh, joyously and triumphantly uh, for them is the 115th for them, them being the Republicans, the opening of the 115th Congress. Um, <clears throat> and the first thing that the House Republicans or some House Republicans try to do was to weaken or eliminate almost entirely the power of an independent committee that investigates ethical and legal transgressions of um, of people in Congress. Now, <laughs> that that is a particularly interesting uh, and telling sign about what we're going to have to deal with here. Um, I think a lot of them uh, basically are taking their cue from um, the president-elect, who... Um, has all kinds of terrible uh, ethical and perhaps even legal problems, which he is not really dealing with uh, correctly or at all, as far as anybody can tell. And um, <clears throat> maybe these House Republicans, uh, I'm not sure exactly who they were, but we'll find out later because we we're going to interview somebody at 1030 who's more of an expert on this. And Well, anybody's more of an expert on anything than I am, but uh, he's an expert on, um, on ethics and the Congress. I think they were just trying to, some of these House Republicans are trying to emulate their, uh, their new uh, Fuhrer, their new leader, who uh, has uh, no interest in uh, ethics or uh, legal problems. He just basically does what he likes. <clears throat> and the first order of business, of course, of the new 115th Congress is to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, which is now insuring approximately 20 million Americans. And this is um, this is something they're going to do as soon as they can do that. And, of course, the other things they're going to do are um, uh, you can tell what they're going to do by the people that Trump has appointed to head these various agencies. Um, <clears throat> workers uh, are in trouble. Workers' rights, women's rights, the rights of um, uh, legal aliens and illegal aliens, the rights of anybody um, – it's going to be what they're really trying to do, the Republicans, is go back to a time before the New Deal, before the New Deal um, with all its, um, its amazing and astounding and uh, welcome and necessary social programs for people who were unemployed, who, uh, who uh, were working um, too hard and not getting paid enough 
prevent a vast amount of unemployed people, for old people, for sick people, all these social welfare programs that came in during um, the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt. And in fact, I think that these Republicans want to go back to a time, and I've been reading a book about, I've been reading books about the Roosevelts and their administrations. I think these Republicans want to go back to a time before even Teddy Roosevelt started doing trust busting when he was breaking up these huge corporations that were um, that were running the country and squeezing everybody else dry. Um, it was the time of the greatest income inequality because these trusts, these vast monopolies of interlocking businesses owned by um, very few people at the top, uh, J.P. Morgan and uh, uh, Harriman and all these other people, they... Um, they operated at will with any without any laws uh, protecting workers workers work children were working people were working 7 days a week getting paid nothing starvation wages um small businesses were being destroyed by these large monopolies because these large monopolies owned um uh, the railroads they owned all the oil they owned all the uh the hydroelectric energy they owned everything and so the first Teddy wrote the first Roosevelt Teddy Roosevelt came in and made it his business to try to bust up these trusts and did a pretty good job of it although you know there was still lingering there one thing that interested me was that um and I'm sure a lot of you already know this is that um one thing he was trying to do and it didn't happen I think until around 1918 or 1920 uh, with a constitutional amendment is that the Senate senators were elected by state legislatures, and the state legislatures were, as often they still are, notoriously controlled by uh, by political bosses and by uh, rich um, businesses and corporate interests in each state and nationally. So that what happened was the legislatures would get the state legislatures would get together and elect these senators, or rather appoint these senators. Um, to uh, represent um, represent the uh, ostensibly represent the people in the United States Senate, but they weren't representing the people. These people were directly representative. Uh, the Senate, in particular, was directly representative of uh, political bosses and the um, and the large corporate powers in the country. So um, that's what the Republicans seem to want to do. They want to turn everything back before. Uh, they want to turn it back to a time when, um, first of all, when it was a white Christian country and nobody else really uh, was allowed or had any rights. Um, women got the right to vote in 1920. I think if the Republicans could do something about it, except the fact that uh, for women who voted for them, they might even turn that back, you know, put women in their place, put women back in the kitchen, in the bedroom, uh, back in the house where they belong and just let men, white Christian men run everything and um, just return to those days, the wonderful, thrilling days of yesteryear. So long, sad times, go long, bad times, we are rid of you. Howdy, gay times, cloudy gray times. 
Maybe happy days for the rich and happy days for the Republicans and uh, not so happy days for all the rest of us. Um, but you know something? I'm sick of politics. <laughs> I really am sick of politics. After all these decades, after most of my life, uh, when I first became aware of politics, when I was about 11 years old and started reading the New York Times and paid attention to what my... Um, parents and what my uh, what the older generation, what my grandparents were saying about the president and about politics and about what was happening, when I realized there was a wider, more complicated, uh, controlling world out there that ran things, and it wasn't just baseball cards and um, running around riding my bike, well, I got interested in it, and I was always interested in it, but... Now, after all these decades, and especially with the shadow of a corporate fascist state looming, I'm tired. I'm sick to death of politics. And I think part of it has to do with um, this almost fatal heart attack I had three years ago. I have had trouble ever since that time being concerned about what's going on in the world. In fact, uh, to the uh, detriment of my general life and other people who know me, I'm just not even that concerned with, about um, what's going on um, in my immediate world. Uh, I've, I've kind of drifted in back into myself, kind of curled up inside myself. And it's been a constant effort to, uh, to connect with other people, to, uh, to not feel a certain sense of danger uh, that I might, uh, that I might uh, drop any second uh, like I did three, uh, three years ago. And... and so in one second, my entire life changed. And instead of, um, I mean, a lot of other people would have uh, probably thought, well, my life was saved. I could have died. And they, be, they take completely the opposite direction. But being, uh, that is to say, they expand outward into life and do all the things they never wanted, to, they, never, they were never able or they were afraid to do before. Uh, take chances, uh, saying, what the hell, I could die any minute. I'm going to do what I like. But I'm one of those 
cautious, melancholy types. It's always been afraid and generally about things. So it's just made me even more cautious and more melancholy and more protective. And one of those things that, I'm, um, that I've sort of crossed off my uh, list of things that were always fascinating and interesting to me uh, was politics. I'd like to leave politics alone, but of course it won't leave me alone. I really would like to leave it alone entirely and never talk about it again, but it won't leave me alone. What, this go- what the government's doing, especially this new administration, uh, will affect me and my family and everyone in this country in ways that I find extremely worrisome and disturbing, and I'm sure all of us do. Um, and like I said, I, I was interested in politics for most of my life. Uh, part of it was, I think, because my first, um, my first uh, exposure to, uh, to uh, a president was, you know, it was always President Eisenhower in the 50s. But then when I was 15 years old, this new, youthful, uh, refreshing president, little did I know exactly what was going on behind the scenes, John Kennedy showed up. And um, he was, uh, for a lot of us who were very young and maybe didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, it was hopeful and it was inspirational. It was a change from the stodgy, uh, same old, same old 50s. And... um, Maybe when I think back about the stodgy, same old, same old 50s, I wouldn't mind it now. <laughs> but anyhow, it was a new thing. It was a new thing in the world, uh, actually. And then there was, um, after that, <clears throat> you know, Vietnam and then Watergate and an endless series of things that were, were interesting. And I was always so interested in politics, uh, even though I was uh, afraid uh, socially, I had a lot of trouble with people. I was actually once the president I ran for and was elected the president of the Young Democratic Club in college at Hofstra College in 1965 and 66. Hofstra was one of the uh, most Republican counties in the country, very conservative county and pretty conservative college campus, too. Um, Mostly the kids, not that bright of uh, successful small businessmen and middle-level businessmen out on uh, Long Island, and generally speaking, there was a lot of rich people who lived out on Long Island, and, and especially in Nassau County. So it was a very conservative place. And um, here I am being brought up a liberal. And there was a, um, there was a club. You know, there was the Young Republicans, which was a huge club out there. And then there was the Young Democrats, which was this tiny little group of people. Maybe there was 15 people. And it was, uh, it was run by a guy named Phil. He had been the president for two straight years partially because nobody was much interested in, in the club itself, and um, <clears throat> partially because uh, there, you know, there weren't that many uh, people to talk to about uh, being a liberal there. They didn't want to hear it. So it was a tiny little club, and it was very middle of the road. He was a, what you would call now a conservative Democrat, an extremely conservative Democrat. And uh, he worked in close cooperation with the regular Nassau County Democratic Club. Uh, Johnson was the president and at the time he was prosecuting the Vietnam War. And Phil and I did not get along. We disagreed on a lot of things. Um, I didn't like him, and it was personal, too. It was personal, and he didn't like me, and the feeling was uh, mutual between us. I thought he was uh, cautious and unimaginative and sort of thick. He was was built thick, and um, he he wasn't... um, now, my father wasn't uh, unimaginative or unspontaneous. He was pretty bright. But this guy, Phil, I always thought was, was pretty, uh, pretty dull and uh, pretty cautious. 
and uh, always took the easy, you know, took to the, the standard conservative way of things. And my father and I at the time, of course, like a lot of people in my generation, were having huge, violent, almost violent arguments uh, about Vietnam. Vietnam was, um, you know, my father having grown up uh, in the World War II generation with the Nazis. You have to stop them when you stop them. Uh, had bought into this whole thing about the communist and the domino theory. So, and there are a lot of people like me who felt that it was uh, and believed and still do to this day that it was immoral and unnecessary and a horrible war. We're having tr- terrible arguments about it. And of course, a lot of us were subject to the draft, which fueled our uh, our fear and our anger. Anyhow, I wanted this club. I joined the Young Democrats because I was a liberal. I wanted this club, as, uh, as small as it was, to oppose the war on campus. Now, Phil, the guy who ran the, who was the president two years running, was dead set against it. He was dead set against it, as were the Nassau County Democrats. The, the regular Nassau County Democratic Organization supported Johnson. That was their job, and that's what they did. Um, and um, Phil was very much connected to them, and um, they needed occasional help from uh, the Young Democrats on campus to help them make phone calls. Uh, they had various phone banks during elections, and they, they recruited a lot of us to make phone calls. And um, Phil was all part of this. He was connected to them, very, very much connected to them. He did whatever they wanted, and um, he spouted whatever their point of view was, especially when it came to the war which really offended me because by the time, you know, it, it got to be 60, 65, 66, uh, there was a huge anti-war movement, and I was very much against the war. Uh, in the fall uh, of 1965, I ran for president of the club. Uh, mostly, how did, I, how did I get to be president of this club? Well, there was only, like I say, about 15 members. Eleven of them were girls. And four were boys. And... Um, Phil was not an attractive or charming guy. And back in the day, before I became old and shriveled, <laughs> I, was, I was a good-looking guy. And uh, I think basically what I did was I kind of charmed, deliberately charmed uh, several of the girls in the club. And I got elected. I got to be, um, I got to be the president of the Young Democrats. And... Um, and Phil was extremely angry. He never, he didn't bother to show up at meetings sometimes. And when he did, he was always telling me that uh, I was leading the club in the wrong direction. And um, he was very upset. And I, you know, I very angry. I didn't know. I thought it was just a question of local power that he wanted to be in charge. I had no idea what was fueling his anger so deeply. Um, the first thing, one of the first things I did was I set up a table with anti-war leaflets. Uh, the campus, uh, and uh, this was extreme. Like I say, it was an extremely conservative, very right-wing kind of place. The ROTC was very big on campus, and um, the campus ROTC colonel and his football buddies um, knocked over the table, uh, practically tore it into pieces. And started calling us commies. We were all commies. Um, the um, the regular Democratic organization called me down and instructed me to stop doing this outrageous uh, communist behavior because it was embarrassing them. They were supposed to be in charge of the various young Democratic groups uh, on college campuses in uh, in Nassau County, and there were three of them. There was. Um, 
Adelphi and CW Post and Hofstra. And uh, probably they were getting a little heat from above, not that we made all that much difference. But it was embarrassing to them, and they wanted us to stop, being, to stop doing this. Um, the, um, the regular Democratic, uh, so the regular Democratic organization called me in. There was a guy, I forget his name. Uh, he called me in, and uh, he um, told me to stop doing this. And I told him that uh, I wasn't going to stop doing it. And um, <clears throat> we would, uh, and we had another argument. He and I had an argument, just the same. My father had an argument. He was uh, of my father's generation, and he said, uh, "Don't you understand that communists are trying to take over the world, and Vietnam is uh, their first step to take over all of Asia, and then to take over the entire world? And don't you get it? I mean, you're 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 ignorant, and you don't understand about the Nazis." And he was giving me all these lectures. But I told him that uh, I did understand all this, and at this day, it wasn't the same thing. And I was going to withdraw uh, the club uh, from his. Uh, I mean, he had no legal power over this club, so um, I continued to set up, uh, you know, uh, card table with leaflets on campus, and uh, the uh, the uh, ROTC colonel continued to come over. and didn't knock the. I complained to the dean, <laughs> so they didn't come over and destroy our card table, but they did managed to sweep the leaflets off onto the floor and sometimes uh, onto, the, um, onto, the, onto the grass because I set it outside. And um, I wasn't really convincing anybody. I mean, this place really was a conservative place. Um, and Phil uh, finally did start showing back up to the meetings and challenging me again. And he wanted to, he was raising all these, he had Robert's Rules of Order. He was raising all these points and he wanted to make sure that uh, I had been legally elected. So it was a big problem. So I was. I was always interested in politics, and uh, especially I was on Sirius Satellite Radio for a long time on BAI. But now, I don't know. It all seems kind of dull to me. And I don't know what happened to Phil. I know after we graduated, I don't know what happened to him. I know he became a lawyer. And what I found out many, many years later, a friend who was in the club with us told me that Phil's father had died when he was in college. And his connection to the regular Democratic organization wasn't just his political preferences, uh, something that he agreed with him on. It was a way he could get ahead in the world and support his family because he had become the sole support of his family after his father died. I think what we'll do now is uh, take another musical break, uh, take five, and um, we'll, um, we'll talk to our guest who is going to discuss uh, what happened on Monday and Tuesday with the Office of Congressional Ethics. All right, we have our guest with us, uh, Craig Holman who is uh, currently the government affairs lobbyist for Public Citizen. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Hi. We're having a little trouble with our uh, technical uh, coming across a little rough on your end. Okay. I think we're better now. Um, 
Something extraordinary happened on Monday. I think most of my listeners are aware of it. Uh, the 115th Congress opened, uh, I guess, basically on Tuesday. But on Monday, um, some members, House Republicans, so well, I'll, I'll, let me just read this little bit from the uh, Times from Tuesday. Uh, House Republicans overriding their top leaders voted on Monday to significantly curtail the power of an independent ethics office set up in 2008 in the aftermath of corruption scandals that sent three members of Congress to jail. And uh, they move, uh, says, the move to effectively kill the Office of Congressional Ethics was not made public until late Monday. Um, and then um, there's a little bit more in here about uh, how the, uh, con- the congressional, the Republican leaders opposed this, but uh, somehow they were overruled. And then, uh, extraordinarily, uh, after this um, really kind of um, surprising and uh, unpleasant move, to, to use a certain word, uh, by some of the House Republicans, uh, there was a reversal. Uh, the, um, the Republicans reversed their, um, their position on the uh, Office of Congressional Ethics and um, went on to uh, other things. And um, I wanted to talk to you about what happened there and a little bit about what this office is and ask you some questions. But first, if you don't mind, uh, can I introduce you to the listeners? Um, yes, uh, I'm Craig Holman, you know, the government affairs lobbyist with Public Citizen. The Office of Congressional Ethics is a critical agency that was created in the wake of the Jack Abramoff scandals uh, to enforce ethics rules in Congress. Uh, prior to creating OCE, uh, the entire ethics process was completely under the control of members of Congress themselves. So it's literally members on the House Ethics Committee overseeing their fellow colleagues. And with that sort of fox guarding the hen house arrangement, uh, the House Ethics Committee literally uh, just was focused more on secrecy and protecting fellow colleagues and mm-hmm. sweeping complaints, ethics complaints, under the rug. Well, uh, the entire period of the House Ethics Committee operating prior to OCE from the 1990s all the way up to 2006, they only issued five enforcement actions against uh, members for ethics violations, just can, five. Can, can, and can then we, um... in the wake of the Jack Abramoff scandal, uh, we not only toughened the ethics rules, but then we created this outside agency called the Office of Congressional can, Ethics. Can I, I'm sorry to, to interrupt. Could we back up just a little bit? I wanted to find out um, um, uh, who was involved. Who, when it says House Republicans in the New York Times article, who was involved in this? What do they mean? They don't mean all House Republicans. I mean, who was involved in uh, trying to uh, to do this? And what what... What was involved? Was it a rule change, or what exactly? Who was involved, and what was involved? Well, first of all, the members who were involved, it was strictly a Republican conference uh, rule, and so no Democrats were involved in this. Uh, the leadership was Goodblatt, who uh, is the chair of a critical committee in Congress, but he was supported by fellow Republicans who had been subject to ethics investigations by the Office of Congressional Ethics. And most significantly, the Azerbaijan uh, scandal that happened just a couple years ago. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Many members who have been subject to OCE really, really don't like OCE. You know, with the House Ethics Committee, they've got their friends on the committee. And the House Ethics Committee is just members, and they're very partisan and very political, and they can manipulate the House Ethics Committee. They cannot manipulate the Office of Congressional Ethics. So, it is a pro- professional agency, and therefore they really, really don't like OCE. Um, so it was uh, this one congressman and several of his friends um, who were involved with the House Republicans. Um, but their leader... The, 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 the actual vote was 119 uh, to uh, neuter OCE versus 74 not to within the Republican conference. Now, this was a secret vote taken on Monday night. Mm-hmm. We know the totals. We just don't know who, uh, really who voted which way. Uh, we have tried uncovering that by having uh, constituents call the Republican members and ask them, how did they vote? And most of the members refused to answer. Uh, about 30 admitted that they voted yes, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And now, now their, their leaders oppose this. Is that correct? Yes, Paul Ryan is on record uh, opposing it. You know, this is interesting because uh, the reform community, and by the reform community, I mean conservative groups like Judicial Watch, progressive groups like Public Citizen, and nonpartisan groups like the League of Women Voters. Mm-hmm. We were all responsible for setting up OCE back in 2008. Well, I was going to ask and, you about that. And yeah. we, it had been reauthorized every session by Speaker Boehner, and Nancy Pelosi. And then this year we had a new speaker, uh, Paul Ryan. So we reached out to Ryan to ask, you know, to try to encourage him to reauthorize this. And we received assurances from both Ryan and Pelosi that OCE would be reauthorized. Mm -hmm. And so we weren't even nervous. And then suddenly Monday night, right before the opening of the new session, uh, we got word of a secret vote in the Republican caucus to neuter OCE. And we were caught entirely off guard and scrambled to get the news media focused on this so we could get citizens calling in and objecting. To tell the truth, I thought we were going to lose. I mean, you know, this was a midnight rules change Mm -hmm. on a holiday. Uh, I was in a movie theater when I received the alert that the Republicans were going to try to kill OCE. You know, we scrambled as fast as we could. I didn't think we stood a chance. But what happened was Americans from all over the country just flooded the phone lines in Congress on Tuesday morning and uh, created literally chaos in the Capitol. Mm-hmm. The Republican conference, just before they were about to introduce this resolution to kill OCE, realized that they're up against a tidal wave of opposition by the American public, and they ran down into the basement, remet, revoted, and uh, withdrew the, the resolution to kill OCE. Well, it wasn't it wasn't just uh, liberals either. It was conservative uh, citizens too. I think, right? That's right. Uh, when it comes to ethics, this isn't partisan. You know, it's it's literally the American public versus Congress is mm-hmm. what it is. You know, there are many Democrats in Congress also who are not pleased with OCE. I mean, many of them right. have been subject to OCE investigations as well. And and so, uh, you know, it's it's a bipartisan resentment against ethics enforcement in Congress. But the American public are... 
entirely 100% behind it. Now, um, the um, House Ethics Committee, as you said, has been there for uh, a long time and has never really – it's it's the fox uh, in charge of the uh, – uh, in charge of the foxes, basically. But uh, you were involved in, in setting up the Office of Congressional Ethics. In what capacity were you involved in um, – why was it? I mean, what was the origin of the need for the Office of Congressional Ethics? And, and when it says it's an independent agency, I don't quite understand that. I mean, who is involved uh, and um, who gets – how does it – how do you get on the, the office uh, – in the Office of Congressional Ethics? I mean, is it appointed or well, – how does that work? Uh, the members are appointed by uh, the Speaker, Speaker Ryan now and Nancy Pelosi. And uh, they are appointed by the, the two leaders of both parties in consultation with each other. Uh, now, the, a, a, a nominee and appointee to the OCE cannot be a member of Congress and cannot be a lobbyist. So they've got to be outsiders. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's what makes OCE work so effectively. Uh, we understood the need to try to create an independent ethics enforcement agency in the wake of the Jack Abramoff scandal. Could, uh, could we you review drafted that? the could Honest you... Leadership and Open Government Act that imposed all kinds of new ethics rules on Congress and then fully realized that if we don't set up an independent enforcement agency, these rules are just going to be ignored. Mm-hmm. And so we followed the Honest Leadership and Open Government Act with creating the Office of Congressional Ethics. Uh... Now that there are there are complaints by uh, by some people, um, some of the co- people in Congress, who uh, wanted to reduce the OCE's powers, and uh, are any of these complaints legitimate? I mean, uh, are, are first of all, uh, I want to ask you this: uh, If you tuned in just uh, just now, we're listening to uh, Craig Holman, and he, he is um, with uh, he's the government affairs lobbyist for Public Citizens Congress Watch Division. Um, how do complaints come in? Who complains? Uh, how do people complain to the Office of Congressional Ethics? You know, that's one of the beauty of OCE is uh, the House Ethics Committee, the, the agency that's run by members of Congress, refuse to accept complaints from the public. Hmm. They will only accept complaints from fellow members. And as you can imagine, fellow members do not complain right. against fellow members. Uh, so in, as part of what we did in the creation of OCE is allowed the public to file complaints with OCE, and OCE also is free to pursue its own investigations based on news reports. So they don't have to wait around for members of Congress to uh, complain to them. Uh, you know, these complaints usually come from people like you and me. That's that's how OCE operates. And uh... now, Many of the members who have been investigated by OCE and their lawyers will complain about the process of the OCE. They're just, their complaints are not legitimate. They're just angry that someone's there to enforce the ethics laws and that they can't, they can't persuade OCE like they can the House Ethics Committee to drop things and to not go public uh, with these issues. You see, what makes OCE so effective, it has two key pillars. Mm-hmm. One is it's not members of Congress who are running OCE. It is independent uh, people outside Congress. The second is once OCE does an investigation and issues a report, that report becomes public record. 
So the House Ethics Committee, even though any actual enforcement action still has to come from the House Ethics Committee, the House Ethics Committee can no longer sweep these complaints under the rug because the OCE reports become public record. If they try to sweep it under the rug, we are going to know and complain about it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what's make, made OCE so effective. You know, I, I wanted to say just one number. I mean, sure. in the entire history of the House Ethics Committee prior to OCE, I mentioned they just had five enforcement actions. As soon as we created OCE, that number quadrupled hmm. uh, because the House Ethics Committee could no longer ignore uh, violations of congressional ethics. Uh, the um, <clears throat> what? What do you think motivated these people to do this? I mean, I was talking earlier before you were on, before you came on, about Donald Trump's, uh, and I want to discuss a little bit about that too. Donald Trump's uh, uh, problems with uh, ethics, possible or likely ethics violations, and maybe even legal uh, violations. I mean, were these people that maybe taking a cue from the president-elect? Yes, that has every appearance of being the case. Uh, Donald Trump, as as everyone realizes, is entering the White House with a vast amount of wealth and his business empire spans the globe to some 23 different countries. Mm-hmm. So he's stepping into the White House with these huge conflicts of interest, and then he's nominating uh, others who are bringing their own uh, baggage of conflicts of interest into his administration to be cabinet officials. Mm-hmm. And he so far has done nothing to try to address those conflicts of interest. And, you know, I, it certainly does appear that Congress is looking at Donald Trump saying, well, if he can get away with it, right. then so can we. And so uh, the Republican conference was emboldened the night before the new session, thinking they could just neuter the entire ethics process. And uh, they weren't successful. It turned out very different than they expected. Well, that's good to hear. Um, <clears throat> so Trump's uh, behavior, um, it, it may be unethical, but is, uh, is it possibly illegal? I mean, uh, there's something about uh, in the, anything in the Constitution, the emoluments clause or whatever. I mean, well, I mean, all this stuff that he's doing, when is it, cr- is it crossed the line sometimes between ethical and illegal? The day he steps into office on January 21, uh, it's very likely he's going to be violating the U.S. Constitution. You know, we have two different sets of ethics rules. First of all, there's the ethics statute, 18 U.S.C. 208, that uh, applies to all administration officials except the president. Uh, the Department of Justice has exempted the president from the conflict of interest statute uh, way back in the 1970s. Nevertheless, every president over the last 40 years has followed the letter of the law and divested themselves of any financial interests that cause a conflict of interest and set up blind trusts for their business empires. Donald Trump is the only one not doing it. But that's not necessarily illegal because the Department of Justice has exempted the president. It's just unethical. However, there's a second uh, ethics set of rules, as you mentioned, the emoluments clause in the U.S. Constitution. Our founding fathers 
were very concerned about these wealthy foreign governments being able to buy off the president or other administration right. officials by giving them lavish gifts or employing them or in some way, you know, throwing money at their feet. And so they wrote right into our Constitution that the president and administration officials shall not take money and gifts from foreign governments. Well, Donald Trump's empire, he's got business stakes in 23 different countries. Mm -hmm. And we're already seeing foreign governments uh, trying to throw money at Donald Trump's feet in the hope of buying access. For instance, one one government had their uh, basically July 4th celebration scheduled at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. As soon as they found out that Donald Trump won, uh, they canceled that and rescheduled it into the Trump Hotel so that they can uh, they can throw money at, at the Trump empire that way. So there is a, a huge problem for Donald Trump that uh, he's he's got to deal with this. Well, is it does he risk impeachment if he doesn't deal with it? Well, you know, the emoluments clause is something that very few people were aware of because there just haven't been that many violations of it. Right. There was a time when uh, Benjamin Franklin received a diamond-studded box from uh, the government of France, and he had to get that cleared under the emoluments clause before he could accept it. <laughs> so, I mean, basically, it just hasn't been invoked. There hasn't been a problem. You know, our presidents have always just not taken foreign money and foreign gifts. Uh, this is the first time it's actually becoming a very serious problem. And all these constitutional scholars are essentially dusting off their constitutions, trying to reread the emoluments clause and figure out, okay, what does this mean and how does it work? So we don't actually know how it, it works. Uh, it, it, the way it's worded, it gives Congress the first jurisdiction for stepping in and making sure the president isn't violating the emoluments clause. Mm -hmm. But can outsiders, can us citizens... Uh, take action, file a lawsuit against uh, the president for accepting lavish gifts from, you know, Azerbaijan or Kuwait. Uh, it's unclear. Mm -hmm. uh, public citizen thinks that we might have standing to do something like that. Uh, but uh, no one knows for sure. We are going to learn quite a bit in the coming weeks here. Does the same thing with the emoluments clause <clears throat> that that had refers to the president? But as far as these ethical breaches, does the same thing apply to uh, people who he's point? Uh, you know, he's appointed to be department and agency heads. Uh, like for instance, I I think I read the other day that Rex Tillerson um, uh, quit. Uh, you know, um, Exxon Mobil because of their relationships to governments all over the world. And uh, is also that he may be putting his money, his uh, fortune, into a blind trust. Yes, that's the conflict of interest statute uh, that we talked about, 18 oh. U.S.C. 208, that does apply to all cabinet officials and senior administration officials. Uh, so they've got to comply uh, to those conflicts of interest prohibitions and divest themselves of any uh, financial conflicts and uh, presumably set up a blind trust or else recuse themselves from taking official actions that would affect their financial empire. 
The problem is uh, the agency that interprets what is a conflict of interest is the Office of Government Ethics. And once Trump steps in, he appoints the head of the Office of Government Ethics as well. Oh. If, if Trump is not going to uh, you know, abide by the spirit, if not the letter, of the Conflict of Interest Code, uh, most of us are quite nervous that that may spill over into many of his administration officials as well, mm. just like we're seeing in Congress. Well, uh, so there's a lot to be seen in the uh, in the coming weeks and months. And uh, like you said, these is, a lot of this is uncharted territory because everybody has observed these rules, except now Trump is not observing them, and maybe some of the people he's appointed are not observing them. Um, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, you've been listening to Craig Holman, government affairs lobbyist for uh, Public Citizens Congress Watch Division. How can how can average citizens? You mentioned you know regular citizens. How can average citizens uh, become aware of what's going on or stay aware of what's going on about this? Is there some way they can check in with Public Citizen or how? Uh, yes, Public Citizen's webpage uh, puts information as as it happens on our webpage to try to keep the public alerted. Remember, we need uh, the public to get involved. I mean, you know, if it's just me, Congress is not going to do what I tell them to. Mm -hmm. uh, what, uh, the way we saved the Office of Congressional Ethics was people like me alerting the press and the media, putting it on our webpage, and Americans all across the country getting involved. It was because Americans mobilized and flooded the Capitol with phone calls that we saved OCE. That was very encouraging, by the way. I mean, with all this bad news, which what I see as bad news anyhow, with all this um, possible, um, you know, uh, conflict of interest and all these other things, all these uh, acts that are going to repeal everything, take us back maybe before the New Deal. Uh, it was encouraging to see citizens uh, of across the board, and especially they, uh, somebody did a... Uh, they measured various states, and in various states, even where people had uh, voted for uh, Trump in various areas, uh, calls came in from all these different places. So that was encouraging to see that Americans still have a sense of uh, decency that way, you know. It was very encouraging. I, you know, I thought we were going to lose this battle. Mm -hmm. And then the American public came and stood, stepped up to the plates, and we won. Uh, so what is, the, what is the website that people should go to? Citizen.org, www.citizen.org. And by the way, on January 11th, Donald Trump is scheduled to make a presentation announcing whatever new ethics rules he's going to decide to abide by. So stay tuned. All right. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Take care. You too. All right. Uh, <clears throat> this is Mike Fader, and uh, this is The Turning Point. Um, this is something... You see, this conflict of interest, uh, this, this attempt to take us all the way back to the bad old days, uh, is something that is not escaping the notice of the vast, uh, vast American public, which um, surprises me. I mean, they elected this man, but of course they didn't elect him by the popular vote. He lost by three million votes, going around saying he's got a mandate, which is what a lot of dictators do all the time. They get a they get a small portion of the vote, and then uh, either by military coup or, um, in our case, by the Electoral College, not to compare the two uh, exactly. But they declare that they have a mandate, and Trump has no mandate, but he's decided he has a mandate. This is the uh, movement and the behavior of a dictatorial type of person. 
But uh, it's fascinating to me and extremely encouraging that this, uh, this attempted move by the House Republicans to overturn this independent investigative ethical uh, ethics office uh, was opposed by Americans across the board and uh, reversed the very next day. So, uh, and even Trump, Trump uh, is aware of publicity and what people think of him and what people uh, and what he looks like. And he tweeted, which is his method of communication, that there must be better priorities than that. So between Trump and Ryan and some of the other leaders of the Republican Party and the American public uh, across the board, uh, they turn this thing around. So that's it. All right, that's it for politics today. I mean, I'm going to try as hard as I can to get more and more interested in politics. There's plenty going on that affects all of us. It affects all of us deeply, and I'll try to get more interested and uh, see if I can also um, pull up some more stories from my past because people seem to like that. That's all for today. I will uh, see you next week. And um, let's go to uh, Happy Days are Here Again, and then we'll, uh, we'll go into our theme after that. Go long, bad times We are rid of you at last Howdy, gay times Cloudy, gray times You are now a thing
got the fire and the fury at his command. Well, you don't have to worry if you hold on to Jesus' hand. We'll all be safe from Satan when the thunder rolls. You gotta keep the devil. Devil.